Tick, tock, tick, tock. This is your James Bond moment. And I was just thinking, I am so dead. True Spies, with me, Hayley Atwell, wherever you get your podcasts. This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. Well, we went in and I could see right away that we were going way faster than he wanted. We hit the ground, slid, and we finally um, cracked up against a tree. The wing broke and I got a splash of ignited fuel across my left front. And Juan pulled me away and we, we went as far as we could from the plane because we were afraid that if... Uh, if the Simbas had seen it come down, or anybody, they might have come over, and we didn't know whether they were friendly or not. I don't know how far we got, because I was in pretty bad shape at that point. From Foreign Policy and Spyscape, welcome to I Spy, real-life spy stories told by the people who were there. Each week we feature one former intelligence operative from somewhere around the world describing one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. On today's show, CIA officer Richard Holm is sent to the Congo to organize local agents against a rebellion. But a fiery plane crash leaves him in hostile territory fighting for his life. The year is 1965. The U.S. and the Soviet Union are fighting proxy wars around the globe. Congo had gained independence from Belgium just five years earlier. But the old colonial power remained involved in Congolese affairs alongside the CIA. Holm begins his story at CIA headquarters in Langley, where he's preparing for his posting. Subsequent to my tour in Laos, I returned to the United States in the summer of uh, 1964. And I was still young and single and spoke French, and I had paramilitary experience by that time. So I, I reported to Africa Division, and Division Chief called me up to his office, and I was, of course, surprised that I was a very junior guy. And he said, we'd like you to go to Stanleyville, Stanleyville was a, a big city in the northeast part of the Congo. So we need to reactivate our contacts and our network in northeast Congo, which is, by the way, the size of France. I mean, it's an enormous country in, in the middle of Africa. So I said, sure, put me in, coach. I mean, I, I had all the qualifications and I was perfectly willing. And so I said, yeah, I'd be happy to take that on. Congo uh, became independent. Belgium gave Congo independence in 1960. And there ensued a period of a lot of turmoil, difficulties for everybody. And so this group, what were named the Simbas, in the spring maybe of 64, they started a revolution and began attacking and taking control of much of the Northeast Congo. I was given access to all the files of all these people I was supposed to try to get in touch with. These were agents that we had been working with for a long time, you know, some formally, some informally. 
I had names and phone numbers, but that's all I had. And of course, the city was a total mess. Uh, nothing was working. And so my task was to overcome all of those problems and, and hurdles and then get back in touch with as many of them as I could. I went down to our medical office and said, I need some shots, where are you going, Stanleyville? And she just rolled her eyes and said, you need one of everything we have. <laughs> so I got on a C-47, headed up to Stanleyville. It's pretty amazing, for hours, just jungle, 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 jungle. Occasionally a, a road was visible, occasionally a river was visible. And we were carrying, among other things, hops for the brewery in Stanleyville because the uh, Congolese troops wouldn't fight if they didn't have beer. <laughs> so hops was considered a strategic material at that time to brew more beer. In the native Congolese areas of the city, there wasn't much visible destruction, I guess is the best word. But in the European areas where the Europeans, the Belgians lived and, and other Europeans, virtually every house had the doors ripped off and the windows broken and the American consulate was broken into and again, the doors were hanging on hinges and windows broken and everything that they could carry, they took out. Many, many cars were banged up against a tree or into a wall or something because these guys would get in the car, they had no idea how to drive. And one of the first things they would do would be to crash it into something. There was only one place in the city that we could stay because this is only a few days after the Simbas had been run out. And there was one complex right on the Congolese River and it had a, a big sort of two buildings with apartments in them. And that's where a lot of the embassy staff had stayed. Most of the clientele were, were Europeans. And the dining room was functioning with limited, you know, not much of a menu. And so I went down to have dinner that night. And really, really a big surprise. I walked in and I'm there with my short sleeve white shirt and a tie and slacks. I was supposed to be a, uh, a State Department officer. And when I walked in, I, it was filled with mercenaries who were very, very nasty looking people. I mean, there's just not any question about it. South Africans and Germans and Italians and sort of a random bunch, all there for the money. Beards and mustaches and weapons and knives. And So I just surveyed the area and said, well, <laughs> this is gonna be different. And I stopped, opened the briefcase I was carrying and took off my necktie and put it in there and then proceeded to the table. I suspect that most of them thought correctly that I was actually a CIA officer. Some of them were there, some of the South Africans were there, and in their minds they wanted to kill as many wogs, they called them, as they could, because they'd have fewer to deal with in South Africa. I mean, they were there, they were blatant racist, and their whole motivation was to kill as many as possible and get paid for it. They were getting paid good salaries, so it was primarily the money, they had tapes that they played, audio tapes, of them attacking a village or a town. And, and they would go in, literally guns blazing, and just shoot everybody in sight. They were indiscriminate. And then another thing that they always did was to liberate the bank, 
the first thing they would do would be to blow up the vaults in, in any bank that might exist there and empty those. I mean, they're just generally mean and uh, nasty individuals. You know. I had basic data on the people that we had been in touch with before the Simbas arrived. And I started going down the list with very little success. The bulk of them, we later found out, had gone to different towns or back to their villages, uh, into the bush. If they were discovered by the Simbas as having worked with the government, a lot of them might have been killed, and, and many were, while the Simbas were in charge. And it occurred to me that, you know, one of the things I wanted to find out from our network and, and just in general was how were the Simbas being resupplied with weapons and material? And one of the clear places was the border with Sudan, because we knew that the, the Russians and the Chinese were moving materials not only through Kenya across the lake, Lake Tanganyika, but also across the Sudanese border. That was our assessment at the time. So I thought if I got to Bunia, I'd have a better chance of coming up with A, a couple of our agents who might have gone back home to Bunia, or B, a look at that border with the Sudan. When I got there, we went, CIA uh, had a base there with several T-28 planes and several pilots. And one was named Juan Perron. And I told him that I wanted to get a look at the Sudanese border, that I wanted to see if I could understand something about the road network and were they bringing in truckloads of supplies. And part of my logic was I had flown over jungles in Laos for two years, and I, I had a pretty good idea of what I was looking for. And he said, two days later, after we were talking, we're going to go up that area so you can fly in the back seat of one of these T-28s. And I said, fine with me. T-28 is a plane that was designed in World War II. It's a stubby wings, big powerful engine. It's got to be flying at a really high rate of speed to stay in the air. It glides like a rock glides. I mean, it's just down to the ground. There's a front seat for the pilot and a canopy over the top, and then behind the pilot is another seat, which is where I sat. You climb onto the wing, and then there are a couple of footholds that you can grab and, and then climb into the cockpit itself. It's a pretty big airplane. It can carry bombs, which it did sometimes, and it had machine guns uh, in the front. When I went up in that flight, I was wearing a helmet, a flight helmet, with a big visor, a sun visor, and, and that you slide up and down. Um, I was carrying a Walther 9mm pistol. Both of us were wearing parachutes, and I sat in the back seat behind Juan. We flew uh, northward out of Bunya along the Sudanese border, saw a, um, a couple of trucks on a road on the ground. And that was a signal that it was, these were Simbas because nobody else had trucks or was out on the roads in them. So we tried to attack those trucks, diving right at that clump and firing our machine guns and then pulling out. And it's the first time I had ever, what they call, been pulling G's. It's like being on a on a roller coaster, only a lot worse because you're pulling up out of that dive. And we did two strafing runs at those trucks, and 
started to resume along the border, but we ran into an enormous storm. And bear in mind that we're right in the middle of Africa, almost on the equator. No navigational aids, no beacons, no nothing like that. And almost all flight was line of sight. The only way you know a storm is coming in Northeast Congo is you bump into it, which, which we did. After we got out of the storm, which threw us all over the sky, neither of us knew where we were. We were essentially just, just on our own in, in the middle of, of Africa with a certain amount of fuel left. I suggested we try to get up high and see if we could see the lakes. Lake Tanganyika was to our south. And that would have been a, a good guidepost for us to head back toward Bunya. But we went up and we couldn't see anything. It was There were still a lot of clouds in the area. So Juan said, well, um, we better crash land. We better you know, get on the ground. I said, Juan, we're both wearing parachutes. Let's just jump. We can open the canopy. You get out on there. And you can't just leap out of an airplane. You, you get hung up on the on the tail, on the rudder or something. So you've got to have the right altitude and right attitude of the plane to do that. He said, no, 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 I can put us down. This was when I discovered that most pilots don't want to jump out of the airplane. I said, okay, you can put you down, I'll jump. He said, no, no, we're going to put this in. So Juan spotted a clearing, what he thought was good enough to get us in. And, and so we began our final approach to get into that clearing and, and do a belly landing on the ground. It's hard to land a T-28. As I say, it travels at very high speeds and, and scrape along the ground without having some potential problems. Uh, but he was confident enough to do it, so, I mean, and I didn't have any options. Well, we, we went in, and I could see right away that we were going way faster than he wanted, even though we had the flaps down. He opened the canopy, and we hit the ground, slid, and it started to slow down, and then the clearing wasn't large enough, and we finally cracked up against a tree at the far end of it. The wing broke, and I got a splash of ignited fuel across my left front. I caught this in my face, really face and then hands that fell out of my hands and leg. So I was, of course, stunned. Juan was untouched by this, uninjured. He jumped out, ran away from the plane, and just shouting at me to get out, get out. Well, I was, first of all, blind because the, the burns had singed my eyelids shut and I couldn't open my eyes. I couldn't use my hands because they had been burned. And I was wearing that seat belt and a parachute. So I, it was, to say the least, it was very difficult. And I, as I say, I was in shock, but I was determined to get out of that thing. And I, I was able to use my elbow to get the seat belt off and then clambered out with the parachute hanging behind me and fell onto the wing, and then Juan rushed up and sort of grabbed me as I was falling off the wing. And then the plane ignited more and sort of blew up. 
And Juan pulled me away, and we went as far as we could from the plane because we were afraid that if, if the Simbas had seen it come down or anybody, they might have come over, and we didn't know whether they were friendly or not. So we tried to get away from the plane and hide. It was almost dark. I don't know how far we got because I was in pretty bad shape at that point. I had been wearing contact lenses, and I knew I had to try to get them out, but I couldn't do anything because I couldn't open my eyelids. So I, I forgot about that effort. There was nothing I could do. And we spent that night lying next to a little stream, trying to figure out you know, what might come next. I'm sure I passed out a lot. Um, there was a lot of pain. The body has a mechanism, I guess, for just letting you actually just pass out. But that night, I just was fitful sleep. It started to rain, of course, to make it even worse. And by morning, we had seen or heard nobody, but we, we had absolutely no idea where we were. And, and that made it uneasy for us because we didn't know whether it was a Simba-controlled area or not. In the end, it was, but nobody had noticed our plane come down. You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy and Spyscape. We'll be right back. True Spies is the ultimate debrief on the stories only spies can tell. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Listen now at spyscape.com forward slash I spy. Welcome back to I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. So, CIA officer Richard Holm is badly injured in a plane crash in eastern Congo. After surviving a long night in enemy territory, he and his pilot, Juan, need a rescue plan. Holm picks up the story from here. The next morning, Juan said, well, we've got to get out of here. And I said, where are we going, Juan? <laughs> we, we don't know anything. And I can barely stand up, let alone uh, do any walking. So I said, leave me here. See if you can find a road or a telephone wire, uh, any sign of people, and then get back here. And the first day, he didn't find anything, but he got more familiar with the immediate area where we were. And then he, the second day, he actually went into a village. He actually saw a village and walked in. And fortunately for us, it was a village of the Azande tribe. The Azandes were enemies opposed to the Simbas and therefore pro-American. I had been prepared to say, um, if the Simbas found us, I was, that I was a French journalist covering the, the rebellion. And I tried to counter the fact that my French would be as good as any one of those guys, so I could carry this off. But in the end, Juan came back with them, and he, <laughs> Juan for some reason had had initially been going to tell the Simbas that we were elephant hunters. (laughs) 
elephant hunters in a T-28. Uh, I don't know where he thought that would go, but it, uh, fortunately we didn't have to ever use that as a story. But Juan came back that day with the tribesmen. They put me onto a stretcher, which was a couple of long sticks with shirts hanging in between, and lugged me into the village. And I was um, very bad shape uh, by that time. They, they opened up some of the scabbing that had taken place. And because we didn't know how to communicate, I asked in French if any of them spoke French. And the chief said, no, but do you speak English? <laughs> and I said, yes, I do. I speak English. So that, that worked to our favor. They, they had a meeting and they decided they would hide me in the bush outside of the village, thinking that if, if a Simba patrol came through and found me, the whole village would be punished. So they put me in a, what looked from a distance like a pile of firewood but the firewood was covering a small hut. And they had uh, somebody, usually a, a, an old woman or a young woman, sitting there who, who was with me the whole time. And the next day they said, um, our doctor will help you. And I, my reaction was, that's okay, I'll wait for one of my doctors. Thinking, you know, what do these dumb natives know about how to treat serious burns? But they did do it. They used their knives to pick out a lot of bugs and vermin that had crawled into my open burns on my hands, especially. In the process, cutting a lot of the tendons and messing up my hands for sure. When they got them cleaned out, they smeared a, like a salve or a potion on my burns. It was made, we, we did later discovered, of snake fat and herbs and tree bark and just something they had developed over God knows how long. It hardened on, on my burns and no question it saved my life. It kept infections out of my body and fluids in my body. And that's how you die from serious burns is either dehydration or, or infection. After it hardened, it turned sort of a bluish black. Juan then left with three other, three members of the village, the village chief and two others, all of them on bicycles. And they were headed for the nearest friendly place that we knew of at the time, which was a town called Paulus. Paulus was approximately 200 kilometers away. And Juan was stunned when he heard that, but I mean, there were no options that we knew of because we didn't know what areas were controlled by the Simbas. We knew Paulus was safe. So traveling mostly at night, occasionally they'd find a river they could use and they'd put the bikes on a canoe and, and float for a night or a day or whatever, but they were traveling mostly at night and they would hide during the daytime. It was a Zande area, so most of the villages were helpful to them and gave them food and things like that. And it took them nine days when they ran into a roadblock, which was manned by Belgians. 
and then they knew that they were safe. They quickly explained who they were and told them that, that I was back in their village. And the Belgians reacted um, quickly and very positively. There was a big Belgian base at Paulus with some transport planes and some smaller planes and some helicopters. And Belgians, I, I can't say enough, they were so positive. They immediately said, we'll go and get him. They sent two helicopters and a C-47. And then one of the helicopters was the village chief. He, of course, had never read maps, but he, they followed the terrain, they followed rivers, they followed road junctions, they followed, and they ultimately came. And by that time, it was um, late afternoon. So when they got on the ground, there was a doctor and the two pilots, a pilot and a co-pilot. The co-pilot and the doctor, they walked to the hut where I was, and the doctor checked me out. He's not in great shape, but he's still alive, was the report. And they, they radioed that up to the other helicopter. But then it was almost dark and they had to stay there. When you're on the equator, which is where we almost were, when it gets dark, it gets dark, boom, like that. It only takes 10, 15 minutes and it is dark. The next morning at daybreak, the pilot, the doctor, and me all got on and got out. It had been about 10 days, nine to 10 days since the crash of the airplane. When the helicopter came back to Paulus and landed, there was a C-123 waiting to take me down to Leopoldville. And very shortly thereafter, um, a 707 arrived from the States. They flew a burn team, they call it, a doctor and couple of nurses and corpsmen flew all the way to Kinshasa to get me, and they picked me up from this hospital in, in Leopoldville, and we started flying back across the Atlantic. My odds were 25% possible when we took off from Leopoldville, but apparently on the flight, my condition improved enough where he said to the pilot, look, let's just go straight on to Texas. And that's where our National Burn Center is, is in San Antonio, Texas. And so the pilot just said, okay. And we flew straight from Leopoldville to San Antonio, Texas. One of the first things they had to do in the hospital in Texas was get that salve, that ointment, that hardened coating of stuff off my burns. I was blind, so I didn't know really what was going on, but a guy came and picked me up and put me on the gurney. To, to take me to a soaking tub, and that was to make this stuff softer, is what they thought, you know. And they used it for debriding a lot of burn patients. But my case, of course, was unusual because of this ointment that they had on it. But this guy picked me up, and I said, my God, you must be a giant. He said, buddy, you only weigh 95 pounds. And I was absolutely shocked. And I said, 95? because I had been 165 when we crashed. That went on for th three different sessions, and that was a very painful period. They had to literally pull it off piece by piece, and it left raw skin underneath, but uh, 
they finally did get it off. They also had to, uh, my eyes were, were a big issue. When my eyes were checked, the ophthalmologist said, we have to take one eye out. They said, look, if, if we don't take this one out, we're afraid it'll start to affect the other eye. And that's when they, they were able to, to get the contact lenses out. And there ensued then a big academic debate about did having contact lenses in save one eye or was that the reason I lost the other eye? And it was totally academic to me. It, I just had to live with the results. Starting in the hospital in Texas, I had wild nightmares and delusions that I was being chased through the jungle by a big black man with a spear, and it was as real as you could imagine. And I would wake up shouting and thrashing around the bed. These were vivid in my mind. And then they produced, a, I guess, a psychiatrist, and he, we talked about it for quite a while. I said, look, you know, I mean, I understand that this is all in my head, but it's very real to me, and uh, that's why I, I have trouble at night. He said, well, you're concerned. You, you think you're in danger of dying. I said, no kidding, doctor. Yeah, that's, I, that's very true. <laughs> and he said, don't worry, it'll get better. After three, maybe four months in Texas, my condition stabilized and they did some initial skin transplants on the burns. But then I was transferred to Walter Reed in Washington, D.C. I tried to put on the, the bravest face I could, but always there was this lingering thought that, you know, how much am I going to recover? Am I going to be able to see again? You know, how are my hands going to be at the end of this? So there was a nagging sort of a concern in my, in my mind about where it would all end up. But I just determined to, you know, push through it. And if the physical therapist said, we've got to do this every day, I'd say, okay, let's do it twice a day. So I was determined to get at it for sure. Mike Duffy, the plastic surgeon who was going to be working with me the whole time, at one point early on, he said, you know, how are you doing? I said, I'm, you know, I'm doing okay. I, I wouldn't mind having a martini in the evening once in a while. And he said, well, I can arrange that if you think it'll help. And I said, what do you mean? And he, he said, I can't produce any alcohol, but I can give the approvals. I said, I can handle the other part of it for sure. So in my closet in my room, I had a bottle of gin, a bottle of vermouth, a bottle of scotch, and a bottle of bourbon. And it, it got to the point where I would ring my bell, the call bell, and the nurse would say, what do you want, ice? And I said, yes, please, ice. And she'd bring in a bucket of ice, and there would usually be three or four friends, and, and we'd all have a drink, literally, and talk about what's going on at work and what's going on in the world. I mean, it was a great reprieve for me. Everybody knew that restoring my sight was going to be a very, very high priority and, and very important for me. So the agency arranged to have the best ophthalmologist they could find in the country uh, to do the operation. And he came over to Walter Reed, and he was the star. And the next day I went in there, and they said, look, if you want, you can be awake during this operation. And I said, no, I'll take the anesthesia. So 
they did it. And um, the first morning I could actually see the ceiling. And then ultimately I could see numbers on a phone. Um, it just cleared. And I got all the way to 2040 at, at, uh, when it was at its best. After really two years in the hospital and 35 plus operations of one sort or another, Dr. Duffy said, this is about it. I can't do much more uh, than we've, where we are now. And so this will be the last operation and then you're on your own. I had been living in the hospital in this room for literally two years. And by that time I was dating my future wife, but my whole life had been controlled by the hospital. And so the, uh, the prospect of suddenly divorcing myself of all of that and returning to normal, quote unquote, normal life was a little bit daunting, to be honest. But I was delighted that it was over and I determined to make it work. And so I checked out and resumed my career. The possibility of being the little gray man was sort of lost because of my scars. I would stand out in any crowd. Uh, so that part of it made it difficult to go back into clandestine operations. But I was able to recruit agents. I could handle agents. I could write reports. I could pursue the, all the activities of a, a case officer at the, at the agency. The nightmares with this fellow chasing me in the jungle lasted four or five years. And my wife was really worried and she said, what is, what's wrong? And the last one, I was in Hong Kong on a, on a tour in that nightmare. I actually had a pistol in my hand and I, I, shot at this guy and he dodged behind a tree and it's all over and I never had another episode Richard Holm recovered from his wounds and spent more than three decades in the CIA. He describes his experiences in the book, The American Agent, My Life in the CIA. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor is Dan Efron. Rob Sachs, Amy McKinnon, and Dan Haverty helped produce today's show. The interview with Home was conducted by Dan Efron. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us, ispy at foreignpolicy.com. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. It really helps us out. Foreign Policy subscribers can sign up to get bonus episodes in your podcast app. Go to foreignpolicy.com slash ispy. If you're not a subscriber, you can get access to additional excerpts and interviews by joining iSpy+. For details, go to foreignpolicy.com slash iSpy. You'll also find a link to our Facebook page where you can get the latest updates and hear directly from the producers of iSpy. Next week on the show, CIA targeter Nada Bacos 
leads a two-year hunt for one man in Iraq. We're following the vehicle, and Sarah Cowie pulls into this farm, essentially, with like a grove of trees that are set up to block the wind for all the buildings around there. The canopy of the trees, we can't see through it, so we don't know what where he's gone at this point. He got out and ran. But yeah, that was incredibly infuriating to get that close to him without actually capturing him. That's next week on I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. As I was saying, True Spies is a new podcast in which real spies tell us about their role in the espionage operations that changed history. True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, meet the people who navigate this secret world. It was going to be a massacre. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Look for True Spies wherever you get your podcasts.